Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast with myself, Galen Stops. And I'm very excited for today's interview because I'm joined by Pedro Jobin, Chief Economist and Founding Partner at Legacy Capital. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us today. Galen, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. So I thought we'd start off looking at the big picture, and maybe then we'll kind of focus in a little bit more on Brazil, where you're based. So we've been witnessing a strong increase in global inflation. Now, in the US, where I'm based, originally this was touted as a transitory inflation, but I think uh, several months on, perhaps it's uh, not so transitory. So we've got inflation worldwide in a lot of places now. This seems to be increasing the chances of a global recession. I'm curious, how do you at Legacy view the current global macro scenario? And how has the fund been kind of playing and approaching this in your trading activity? Thank you. It's a very good question. Galen, I think all the situation starts with the excess of stimulus and complementary income that most uh, countries, especially developed markets, extended to uh, families and business. Those were uh, far greater than necessary during 2020, 2021. And uh, this amount of stimulus basically created uh, an excess demand for uh, goods, uh, semi and industrial goods uh, across the board, especially in developed markets. All these goods are mostly produced in China and on the other countries of Southeast Asia. And these countries actually responded to this extra demand and from the request for the production, since everybody was unable to attend services or to travel. So this extra demand for goods was actually met with increasing supply from most Asian countries and China at the expense, of course, of a more expensive GDP production. Because to produce one unit of industrial goods, it's more expensive in terms of energy than to produce one unit of services or a travel or a hotel booking. So China was undergoing a process of turning its economy into a more local related, so more tilted into services and domestic absorption. But given this new situation, it sort of stayed in the old mode of exporting goods, which was like the engine for growth in China for quite a long time. So this uh, imbalance actually demanded more gas, more energy, more oil. And then we have like another facet of the situation is that we had like an underinvestment in the fossil fuel plants across Asia, across Europe for a long time due to many reasons, environmental issues that are in today's agenda. And so uh, since the middle of last year, I would say Europe was already feeling this pressure of higher gas prices, high oil prices. So oil is, of course, the commodity that can yield this extra demand in the short run because there are reserves and there is also some spare capacity on OPEC and some other countries. But we are seeing an increasing price of energy that was originally provoked by this excess demand situation. And then we had like a third important imbalance, which is the imbalance in the labor market in the United States mostly. People are not coming back to work at the speed that everybody believed they would. 
Of course, there is some uh, demographic effect also. Some of the baby boomers are anticipating their retirement and are retiring already. The fact is that you have like a lot of job openings, an extremely tight labor market, and you have limited response of the supply. So we came to a situation, I would say November last year, that the Fed realized that all this story about transitory inflation that you mentioned in the beginning was something that was not true. It had never been true. But a lot of people believe in that theory, in that narrative for quite a long time. And the Fed did. I mean, all the decisions they took during 2020, 2021 were basically unanimous. So nobody was actually voicing actively uh, inside the U.S. government or in the Federal Reserve or in other major central banks against the error that this policy actually had been. So we have this situation that was prone to developing to higher inflation since the end of last year. CPI in the U.S., 7.5% last year. And on top of all this mess, you have this conflict of Ukraine and and Russia, which is, I mean, terrible. Apart from the humanitarian uh, issues that, uh, uh, of course, it raises, it uh, creates a shortage on uh, several commodities, especially grains and the oil and the other fuels that are distilled from oil. And actually, the most dangerous situation now we are learning, it's coming from diesel, like fuel oil and gas oil. We have a major shortage in that, that is actually developing itself both in Europe and the United States. Okay, so this uh, situation of high inflation actually implies a few specific things that are different from previous business cycles that we saw for instance, in the United States. Now, the Fed conducted most interest rate hikes in the previous process of monetary tightening, not looking at inflation because there was no inflation for a long time in the United States. So it had the luxury of only looking at mostly unemployment and labor market measures to actually fuel uh, the heat or the position of the economy. So the typical pattern The typical template of a U.S. business cycle, okay, you had a recession, unemployment goes all the way to 8, 9, 10%, and then it becomes going down 9, 8, 7, 6. When it becomes, you know, uh, 6, 5, the Fed say, oh, wait, we don't have inflation. I'm going to start raising rates, but don't worry. It's going to be 25 basis points at each time. So all this strategy gave a lot of predictability and a demand for duration, both in fixed income assets and stocks, because the cycle was actually able to endure a long, long run. So everybody was actually happy with this approach because there was no inflation. Everybody also knew that at some point when the economy would begin to show some weaknesses, the Fed would go back there and say, I'm going to lower rates. That was the famous Fed put that has been present for a long time. Now it's different because there is not only inflation, but very high inflation and core inflation. Like Larry Summers has been saying, the United States is no longer a 1.5% core inflation country. It's now a 5%, 6% core inflation country. And so here in Brazil, or if you are a trader or an economist, an analyst in the developing markets, actually this gave us sort of a, I would not say a privileged position, but what we are seeing in developed markets now is a film, is a template that we have been accustomed to see in Brazil and other emerging markets for a long time. Because when inflation gets impregnated into the system, it takes a long time to get rid of it. 
And if you see, for instance, what the Central Bank of Brazil did last year, it began the cycle with one pace. It had to move to another pace later and still to another more uh, restrictive pace even later. And we are seeing the same film again in the Federal Reserve. I mean, they began with a 25 basis point increase. That 25 basis point is something that the central bank sort of invented this space. It was suitable for the type of business cycles that we saw in the past. But of course, they are not the recommended policy pace for a situation like this. So for a long time, we have been foreseeing that the, the discussion for a 50 basis point would come. Actually, it came. And now the discussion is whether they are going to discuss an even more quick pace later in the cycle. I mean, it's very concrete probability that they end up moving to a 75 basis point pace. Why? Because if they stay with 50, they're going to leave federal funds rate at 3.5% by the end of the year. They still won't produce positive real rates. Now, we are just arriving at 0% real rates on the 10-year yield. But actually to invert the trend of the labor market and make unemployment instead of going down, going up, that is producing a recession, you need positive rates. And we don't know the amount or the size of these positive real rates and how much time you have to practice them in order to decelerate the labor market. Now, a conviction that we are growing ourselves increasingly more sure about it is that the United States will move into a recession in the next, say, 12 to 18 months, because there is no other time in the past in which you receded from such a high level of inflation to a lower inflation, like we are seeing today in the markets. The tips market, you see uh, 3% expectations, even lower than that. They came up, but they are still low. You don't produce this disinflation without a recession. Just jump in there. Okay. The, um, there's been lots of talk about whether the Fed can manage the um, quote unquote soft landing, right, with their rates increases. So it, it sounds like you don't have much faith, not necessarily in the Fed, but kind of the possibility of actually anyone being able to create this kind of soft landing that people have been hypothesizing around. I think it's very difficult exactly because of this, Gilly, because we are at uh, 8% inflation now. And the labor market tightness will continue to produce higher salaries unless you produce monetary tightening to invert this trend. There are really no comparable episodes in the past in which the Fed could engineer such a, a slowdown without putting the economy into a recession. I mean, some people speak about 1994, but that was really different. I mean, the level of inflation was not the same. If the space of payroll generation continues at, say, 300,000 per month, even a little bit less, we can see 3% unemployment rate very, very quickly. And I mean, it's just not how things work. I mean, once you arrive at this combination of features that is very, very low unemployment and very high inflation, there is no other way. And you asked in the beginning how we have been playing this. So I think the key here is to play short you have to be able to be short bonds and short stocks. And that's a major challenge. And apart from that, it's another theme is that commodities are one of the few asset classes that will sort of overperform in this market. Once you have like stocks and bonds, like two big chunk of asset classes that most investors hold, these will actually lose value. But a few commodities like oil, perhaps gold, gold has the feature that I mean, it's another thing that arrives from this uh, whole situation of the conflict. 
that the Fed and the other developed markets actually declared the Central Bank of Russia reserve should be non-available. So in our understanding, this will have long-term implications because people will, especially uh, big institutions or central banks, will look for different fiduciary or alternatives to developed market currencies. But this is a long-term process. Given that you see commodities overperforming, does this have implication for, you know, people talk about commodity currencies, right? Does this overperformance of these assets have knock-on effects in the currency markets? Well, I would say that between January and April, this was the case because the dollar has been going up, I would say, since the beginning of the year against developed market currencies like the euro, like the pound, but not against commodity currencies like the real, even the Mexican peso or the Canadian dollar or other currencies that are linked to commodities. So this was the case, and actually Brazil benefited from this feature, I would say, until very recently. But we have been uh, seeing like an across-the-board overperformance of the dollar because of this perspective of the Federal Reserve actually among the major central banks being the one that is going to move quicker. So we are seeing actually a long dollar development in the markets, and it really remains difficult to see how this will evolve. I mean, if the Fed moves to 75 or goes to 4.5-5% Fed funds by the beginning of next year, which is something that we consider almost like our base case, perhaps it's not going to be the case that commodity currencies will perform. But to be frank, the directional trade for the asset class of currencies has been one of the most difficult ones among all asset classes in the past, I would say, two, three years. At least here in Legacy, we haven't extracted much alpha from pure currency trades. So you noted that I mentioned more interest rates, bonds and equities, and not so much effects because it has been hard for us and I think for the market as a whole also. I would agree with that sentiment. Given everything that's happened the last few years, you know, COVID, sort of a land war in Europe, I think it's a little bit unfair to ask people to predict the future, but I'm going to do it to you anyway, Pedro. Going forward, how do you see a lot of the scenarios you've just outlined, kind of this macro environment, how do you see it evolving? Well, as you said, there are many things that are going on that are challenges. I mean, even though like the major backstage remains inflation and the actions that central banks will take in order to address this inflation. So like the big picture continues to see one in which bonds lose value, in which inflation goes up, in which uh, inflation protections yield good uh, results. But as I said, there are things that are happening that uh, can just pop up and put the world in a situation of a sharp recession all of a sudden. I think the one that is the most important one is the fuel oil situation in Europe and in the United States, the shortage that was prompted by this whole situation of the conflict in Europe between Ukraine and Russia. Because if we arrive at a situation in which you have no fuel or we actually have to ration fuel, it's going to be a problem. I mean, imagine the United States. It's a country that relies on trucks to make like coast-to-coast transportation. Brazil also depends on trucks. Europe, I think it is the case, even though there is a more a rail thing, but some of the rail or the trains use also fossil fuel. So I would say that this is the at this moment the most dangerous thing that we are seeing. And the risk is that oil prices get out of control. 
So this is one thing. Of course, the, another one is the situation in the war. I mean, we cannot see an end in the short run. There is no way out, at least at this time, that we can see for Putin. So this remains a situation that can evolve into something that militarily could get a lot worse, perhaps even involving NATO countries and more directly. And also there's the situation of China, which is in the opposite phase of the rest of the world. I mean, it's easing policy, it's putting stimuli in the economy, fiscal stimulus to the constructors and uh, to families. But what's happening is very strange because they have this zero COVID policy. And this is clearly something that the chairman, Xi, I mean, it's something important for him because he put his political leverage on this policy. So they will not drop this policy easily. So we can easily see this situation evolving worse in the next few months in the sense that it's going to be impossible for China to have higher than 5% growth this year. We have to see what happens with the other provinces and the situation because this is the kind of thing that still affects the supply chains could add to inflation pressures if this continues to go on. So I would say that are a lot of checkpoints. But because of this, we actually reduced the amount of risk also because of the prices of the assets, oil, the bonds in the United States, and most of the curve is in the vicinity of 3% now, stocks as well. There was some decrease. So we reduced the positions, but we think the direction for these major assets is still the same. Stocks down, bonds down, and commodities uh, with this selection sort of uh, up as well. We are also putting a position in agriculture commodities. So the backstage remains the same, but with sort of a lower amount of risk uh, here at our fund. We've talked about a lot of global macroeconomic themes there. I want to kind of drill down now slightly into Brazil. And so let's kind of just link the two briefly. How does this global outlook, which you've just done an excellent job of outlining, impact the situation in Brazil right now? Okay, Brazil is a country that benefits from the fact that it's geographically distant from this conflict and also benefits from being a major producer of this commodity, especially corn, soybeans, oil, iron ore. We have a very large producer of hoop and paper here in Brazil as well. So the country is well positioned to endure a better situation than most other countries at this time. Some people point to the permanent fiscal fragility of the country. Now, before all the situation emerged, I would say September uh, last year, at that point, we didn't see that inflation would be that nightmare that everybody's looking at this now, still distant. The conflict was not a reality. So we made the calculations at that time for Brazil during this year, say, okay, they scrapped the expenditure ceiling. This will put the country into a recession. We have higher interest rates. The country will not grow. And total debt will go from, say, 80% in the end of last year to 85% by the end of 2022. Now, nothing of this has happened. Commodity prices are a powerful tool or a powerful inductor for both the growth of the country, for total taxes that are collected by the government, and also for the total dynamics of the debt. For instance, Petrobras, which is the big oil company that there is in Brazil, in this year, given, say, $100 oil price for the barrel, 
Petrobras will pay the federal government and the state government something in the vicinity of 4% of GDP in oil royalties, taxes, and dividends. So this is a lot of money. Actually, this makes the public finances of Brazil significantly better. So what we are going to see this year, instead of an increase in the debts, perhaps the debt staying flat at 80% or even lower than that. Of course, inflation is high, so the nominal GDP also helps in this indicator of the total debt to GDP. Brazil is experiencing high inflation like everybody else. It was 10% last year. This year, we estimate 8.5%, but there's a risk that it goes even higher than that. But on the other hand, the central bank did a good job here. It started earlier. We'll probably hike uh, also together with the Fed today 100 basis points and perhaps end the monetary tightening at 12 and 75 basis points, having implemented almost 1,100 basis points in terms of uh, total tightening. So uh, this will not solve the situation of inflation this year, perhaps not even next year, because we have a tight 5% uh, ceiling of the inflation target for next year. So it's not very easy to attain. But on the medium to long term, I think that the level of interest rates produces a real rate. I mean, uh, ex-ante real rates in Brazil are now uh, 6.5%. So that should surface to uh, decelerate the economy and to contain inflation in the next few years, say 2023. 2024. So Brazil is looking better. Uh, it's uh, going to grow. We recently updated our forecast uh, from 0.8 to 1.2% this year. Labor market is very strong. Services are doing well. Retail sales are also not bad. And also the commodity sectors are making a lot of money. So when you compare Brazil to other emerging markets, I mean, emerging market is itself a category that actually is sort of shrinking. I mean, Russia you know, it's not uh, available for investment anymore. Turkey has been hard for a long time because of the weakness of the currency and the policy mismanagement that they are deliberately implementing. Have markets like Mexico, South Africa, Brazil, that are sort of, you know, for investors to diversify into emerging markets. But if you compare the size of the recession that the U.S. may experience in 2023, I think we won't see a similar size in Brazil. I wanted to ask you about the election. Obviously, that's taking place in Brazil in October. I don't think it's unfair to say that it has the potential to be a, a somewhat contentious election, regardless of who ends up winning it. But my question for you is, what is going to be the sort of the biggest immediate challenge sort of vis-a-vis the economy for whoever does end up winning that election? I think the election will be an important issue in Brazil. I think the market tends to see Lula as someone who is not so bad because the economy actually grew during most of his term. But actually, we have an understanding here that it grew because the conditions of the Brazilian economy were completely different from what they are now. I mean, Lula received Brazil in 2003 with a high unemployment rate, with inflation at 12%, with the credit to GDP at 25% with China growing 15% per year that commanded a powerful commodity cycle in uh, Brazil. And also, Brazil was a younger country. The total population in uh, age for work used to grow at that time 1.6%. Now it's growing 0.8, 0.9. So it's older. It's not the same. So to implement the policies that he actually implemented at that time of you know pumping credit through the state banks and actually Petrobras, he didn't put the company to practice international prices. 
there was a lot of mismanagement and actually malfeasance of public funds that ended up in the very ugly and the painful recession for Brazil in 2015-16. So these methods, and it's very clear from his talks that he's going to do the same, at least his ideas continue to be the same. So I think people tend to see Lula as sort of good, but it will end up being bad for Brazil. On the contrary, the fiscal performance of the current administration has been something that you really cannot compare with any other one in the past. This is the first government since the constitution of 1988 that will deliver a lower level of expenditures at the end of the term compared to the beginning of the term. So all other governments in Brazil increased expenditures, but this government, despite facing a pandemic, actually is going to manage to deliver lower expenditures because of the social security reform and also the policy for civil servants. The administration does not hire servants to replace the retirees, so it has a big effect. And the civil servants haven't been receiving an increasing salary with all this inflation of the past years. So this has a very powerful effect on the fiscal accounts of the country. So the challenge will be to design a fiscal setup that will ensure confidence on the part of investors. The big problem of Brazil is the fact that 95% of total expenditures are sort of mandatory and they are consumed in terms of social security expenditures and personal expenditures that leaving very little room for discretionary uh, investment or other different policies that the government would like to do. So you need a sort of a administrative or civil servants reform in order to lower the growth of the total civil servant base going ahead and perhaps another adjustment in terms of the social security as well. I don't know if another reform, but you have to think of a way to address this situation. So it's going to be important to ensure this, but a lot for Brazil will depend on the commodity side. If we have like a big global recession, commodity prices plunge, if oil goes back to 50, soybeans goes down, then Brazil is going to be in trouble regardless of who is going to be in charge, because this exposes more structural problems in the fiscal accounts that the higher commodity prices sort of masquerade during some time. So a lot will depend for Brazil in the next few years regarding the position of commodity prices. Pedro, you've covered a lot of ground during our discussion. And I just had, I had one final thing what I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, we've talked about a lot of things that could impact the Brazilian economy and its currency. We've talked about inflation, supply trade disruptions, COVID, the election. Maybe it's at a distance, but the war in Ukraine's kind of knock-on effects on Brazil. These are all high-profile issues that are getting a, a lot of coverage in the press and general awareness. Are there any risks that you think aren't getting the attention they deserve or are not being properly priced into the market right now? In terms of a risk sort of ill-measured, we don't know exactly how will the election play out. We don't know who is going to be a candidate. I mean, the action of elections in Brazil usually begins later July into October when the elections are held. For instance, in the past two elections, you had one major contender that was killed in a plane accident in 2014, Eduardo Campos, and it sort of changed the dynamics of the election significantly. In 2018, you had Bolsonaro being better in uh, September. So that was like one month before the election. That, uh, you know, was a game changer as well. So the fact is that we are still too early 
And the recall that the people have regarding uh, Lula is playing a big role because a lot of people associate his image to positive years, especially 2003 and 2010. But as the dynamics of the campaign begin, a lot of the mistakes and the malfeasance that took place during those years will actually come around. So one thing that could happen is that Lula perhaps is not going to be a candidate. I think this is sort of a material risk. And that could change significantly the picture because it could open space for a third candidate. Now, how the the election is, is placed today, it looks very polarized if we actually end up with Bolsonaro against Lula. But I would say there's something like, uh, I would say 30% probability of having like a different composition in terms of the major contenders. I think we're too early to see that. And if we have a third contender, I think this would yield a positive tilt to the election results. Well, Pedro, thank you so much for that. There's um, obviously a lot to keep an eye on as we move forward, both kind of in Brazil and globally. So thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and discuss all this with me today. Guy, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And to all our listeners, thanks for joining us. And please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T Podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.